if you pay attention to the news at all or you uh, watch what's going on, uh, you, you obviously know if you, if you live in this country and you have access to any media that we're uh, in a, an election year and we've got a presidential election coming up and, and in the next few uh, weeks or so we're going to start having lots of debates. There's going to be uh, televised debates and you're going to see those and candidates will get up and they'll start to talk and they'll tell why they're the reason and why they're going to solve the problems and all the things that they'll say, and, and I want you just to think about that. If you've ever watched any of those, or you've seen any of those kind of debates or those talks, I want you to think, what would it be like if, if one of the candidates started saying over and over that the answer was completely in them, and, it was, and they started to talk and allude of, about how they were going to lay down their life for the country, and through my sacrifice, this will happen, and they started to talk that way, what that would sound like, and what that would look like, or what would you think? If you heard a candidate start saying that I'm going to lay down my life for the time that's coming where, where I'm, I'm going to die and I'm going to do that for the good of this country and those things, what would you think? Or what would you? Obviously, we, we, would, we would think either they're crazy or we would think they're, they're speaking metaphorically. They're, they're telling us something. They're talking about sacrifice in terms of, of what they might do or what their uh, just general feel. But we wouldn't actually think they're going to die. We wouldn't think they're actually saying the answer is I'm going to lay my life down. And so this morning as we're moving back into our series and into John, that's essentially what we're going to see with Jesus. When Jesus comes and, and everybody's uh, whipped up in a, in a frenzy over who he is and what he might do and what he might come, and then he keeps saying these things over and over, and people just kind of look at him and think, well, he can't mean that. He can't really mean that. And so you see that over and over, and that's where we're going to be this morning, is as you just heard and what we just read from John chapter 12, that's the passage we're going to be looking at. And if you want to follow along in your Bible, we'll be beginning in there in verse 20. Or if you want to follow along in the Pew Bible, that's on page 584 as we'll be looking at that. But So this morning is we're stepping back into that. We've been moving real quickly because we've been doing a big overview series. So this is just our, our third week in, uh, in the Gospels. And so what we've been doing is we've been moving through, if you're unaware, Jesus' earthly ministry lasted right about three years, and oftentimes we divide it into three sections between those three years, the first year being his, his uh, year of announcement as he comes, and everybody's starting to see who he is, and then the second year they often say the year of favor, where everybody's just real taken, and then the third year becomes the year of opposition. And the reason being is it's partly what we talked about last week. What happens is people are coming to Jesus and they want to use him as a guru or somebody that comes alongside and gives them good advice and they can follow his advice. Or they just come to him because they want things from him. He can heal and he can do great things and so maybe I can get something out of this. And each and every time Jesus keeps taking them back to the spiritual reality, the realness of what our heart condition is and have that. He doesn't let them just come and use him. He doesn't let them as a, as a good teacher to follow. He keeps bringing them back. And he keeps talking about last week in John 6. They come and they say, what do we do? What, what can we do? They're asking, how do we follow you? How do we do the works of God? And Jesus says, you believe in me. You put your faith in me. And so as he continues to say this over and over, there's a lot of people that are missing it. They're missing really the, the deep level of what he's talking about. And then there's some of the religious leaders that get really upset by it. And they start to get frustrated because Jesus keeps talking about himself and who he is and what he came to do. And, and I'm the one sent from heaven. And he says things like, before Abraham was, I am. And they all are ready to kill him after this. 
And so you see this all the way through, thing after thing that happens. And so as, as, as the people come and they're missing things, some are trying to talk about an earthly kingdom. And Jesus keeps saying that's, that's not what this is. And he keeps redirecting them and he keeps telling them. And they keep trying to bring it back to that. You see in the passage right before this, just, just to set our context, we've been moving through the Gospels in those three years. We're now to the last week of Jesus' life. And normally we wouldn't move that fast to the Gospels, but since we're doing an overview, we've kind of hit really one in each of those three years, and now we're to the third year, and it's the last week. And right before this is what we call the triumphal entry. Jesus comes in to Jerusalem, and people are throwing coats down before him, and they're yelling, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're, they're so excited, and this is our king, and look what he's going to do. And they're just all, and even in that, even in that, Jesus is correcting him. He comes in on a donkey. Right? Instead of a great stallion and whipping them up into the center, he comes in on the donkey. And so he's always bringing them back. And so that's what we see. And, and in doing so, he ruffles a lot of feathers. And really what's behind that is because they're missing the fullness of what his kingdom is like. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago, that Jesus' kingdom is a very different kingdom. He's a very different king. And that's what he keeps telling them. And that's what he keeps saying. And we see that this morning. And so as we look at John chapter 12, this is... Uh, the way I want us to go at it and think about it is, is first, uh, they're looking for a king and they're ready to inaugurate their king. But Jesus has a very different inauguration in mind. So that's the first question I want to ask. How is the king inaugurated in Jesus' kingdom? How is the king not inaugurated in Jesus' kingdom? And then the second question we're going to ask is, why is it like that? Why is the power of this kingdom like this? It's so different from what everybody's thinking. And then lastly, we're just going to ask, how do we miss it? How do we miss out on that? So let's start there with uh, how is the king inaugurated. But before we do, let's just pray real quickly before we, we go to this. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what it teaches us. We thank you that you came and that you came uh, as a man and you stepped into this story and you did and lived a life that we couldn't live and that you didn't let us settle for an earthly king, but you had much bigger plans in mind. I pray that you would show us clearly that this morning that we'd be moved to see you more clearly for who you are and the way you love us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So how is the king inaugurated in Jesus' kingdom? And we're going to think about how different that is. As I said before, you know, you think about the debates and the things we watch in the political scene today. Uh, no doubt if you've lived in this country for any time, if you're of any age at all, you've seen at least one, if not many, inaugurations of our presidents when that happens. And what, what that looks like, and uh, millions of people cram into Washington, D.C., and they have uh, speakers and bands and news coverage and all that stuff, and it's a big to-do and all the things that go with that, and we make such a big deal. And in a lot of ways, that's the scene right before our text here this morning, is Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and people are really starting to think, this is the promised Messiah, he's going to be our king. But they're looking at it in earthly terms. They're trying to make him, like, let's grab him and make him king. Let's go right now. And that's kind of what the scene is. And so when you get to that picture in your mind, that's kind of what's surrounding Jesus and people are so excited about. And then we start to read in verse 20. So look at verse 20 to 23 with me. And so he's just come in and everybody's excited. And it says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. And so they came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew, and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come 
for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm going to stop right there for just a second. Because that would make sense to the people listening. The, the Greeks that are seeking him, the Greeks being the non-Jewish that are, that are looking at who God is and have come and they're starting to worship and they're trying to figure this out and they come to see and they say, we want to see him. We want to talk to him. And so when they hear Jesus say, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, everybody would be going, yes, that's right, the King is here. The time has come and now let's make him King and that would make perfect sense to them. Yes, the hour has come. Let's do this. Here he is, and they're excited about it. And you can see them kind of nodding along as he says that, the son. But, but there's something here that I think the audience would have missed that we can see because we have God's Word laid out for us, and as we read through the Gospel of John, we can start to see things that they weren't seeing in what Jesus says. In, in men's prayer breakfast on Tuesday morning, we've just been working our way through the Gospel of John. I think we're uh, right around chapter 6 now. And one of the things that starts to surface in John's Gospel is you really start to dig in and, and study what it says and, and think about the way he's writing and, and what he says is this idea of the hour. This, this phrase that John uses over and over in the Gospel about the hour. And Jesus talks about the hour is not yet here, the hour is at hand. Now he's saying the hour is here, the hour has come. And if you look at that throughout John's Gospel, every single time the hour is mentioned, it's talking about Jesus' death. Every time. Every time that phrase is used. And so people show up and they're so excited about Jesus and the possibility of him being the king and he's going, yes, the time is now for me to be glorified. The hour has come. And so if you know John's gospel and you've looked through and you've looked at those words and you've thought, hey, the time has come for me to die and glorified. Not at all what people are thinking totally opposite of what they're thinking because they're thinking we're going to take Jesus and make him king and we're going to overthrow Rome and Israel's going to be restored to what it was under David and it's all going to be wonderful and it's going to be great and Jesus is talking about dying. Now, we're doing the quick overview of scripture here and we're running through the Gospels pretty quickly and so we haven't had time to really develop this but this is nothing new. Jesus has said this over and over. He told his disciples, in fact the first time he told the disciples, he says the Son of Man is going to be delivered over and he's going to be taken and he's going to be killed. And Peter, Peter, always jumping in there, that'll never be, Lord, I'll never let that happen. And Jesus turns to Peter and he says, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. And so Jesus has been saying this over and over. This is why I came. This is my, my plan. And he's, he's, he's moving towards this, but everybody's missing it. And, and I don't want to say that, but oftentimes we look at the people in Scripture and they seem to be missing so many obvious things as we read it. I go, how are they missing that? How are they not seeing it? And oftentimes, and that's the way I think, well, I, what, Peter, what a bonehead. Why would he say that, right? But, but the reality is, if, if you were there, or I were there, or we were there together, we'd be saying the same thing. All throughout the Old Testament, it talks about that the Messiah will come and he will be from the line of David and he will sit on his throne and it will be eternal. And it makes perfect sense. And so when the Messiah comes and he starts talking and then he starts talking about dying and they go, well, wait a second, it says that he's going to come and it's going to be this eternal throne and this thing. How does that go together? And so you can understand why the people are confused. If you skip down and you look at verse uh, 31. And so Jesus says, Now is the judgment of the world... Now will the ruler of the world be cast out, and when I'm lifted up from the earth, 
I will draw all people to myself. And he said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So again, he's talking about his death being lifted up. He's talking about crucifixion and what that will look like, and he's telling them that. And so he says that, and then uh, verse 34, it says, So the crowd answered, We have heard from the law, the law being the Old Testament, that the Christ remains forever. How can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? So here's Jesus saying, I'm going to die, and this is what it looks like, and this is how this is going to happen. And everybody goes, well, wait a second. That's not what it says. That's not what Old Testament says. Right? They're asking. They know those prophecies, and they're saying, it, it says that you're going to be forever. How can this be? And so if we put ourselves in their shoes, we can kind of understand where they're coming from. It makes sense. They don't have the whole story. Right? They're right in the middle of this. They don't have the way it plays out like we do. And so they're missing part of it. And I want you just to get the feel of how strange that would be what Jesus is saying to them. It would be just as strange if one of the uh, leading politicians or somebody running for president started talking about how they were going to die and how that was going to fix everything. We would just go, what? That's crazy. That's kind of what's happening here. Jesus keeps talking about his death and what's going to happen, and he keeps saying that over and over. You know, it's interesting to me, it's just, just as an aside in this passage when you start to think about this and how far removed this was from their thinking. Often today, one of the uh, arguments against Christianity or, or one of the alternate explanations says, well, the disciples uh, made up the resurrection. Jesus actually got crucified. He lived and he died and he was a great teacher and he did wonderful things and then he died and they didn't know how to handle it. They were crushed and they didn't know what to do so they made up the resurrection. And they disseminated this story and that's how Christianity started. All of history, everything you can read, everything about that time, there was no thought at all, none, of a Messiah that would come in the middle of history and be killed and then resurrected in the middle of history. None there's no thought, there's no way for them to make that up. And no one, no one would have believed it anyway. Right? The Greeks didn't even believe that you wanted to come back. The idea of resurrection was repulsive to them. And so oftentimes when I hear that, I'm kind of tickled because the, the history doesn't support that alternate theory. It just doesn't make sense. It couldn't have happened. That would have never grown like it did because nobody would believe it. And the only reason anybody believed it is because it actually happened. That's, that's the, good, the good part. But I say that just as an aside because when everyone starts this and the way people would have responded to him talking about dying and what we see, it just doesn't make sense. And so the first part that we're saying is how is Jesus' inauguration versus what the people are thinking and Jesus is saying it comes through my death. The people are thinking we're going to make him king and this wonderful thing's going to happen and Jesus says, no, I'm going to die. And so the second question becomes why is it like that? Why is the power of the kingdom, why does it have to be this way that Jesus has to die? Why not just let him make him king and do great things and, and move on with it? I want you to think about the picture that's around them. Sometimes we miss that. Going back, Israel had a wonderful history under King David. They were the greatest nation in the world. We talked about that and how it grew and their kingdom expanded. And now here we are a thousand years later. Now Rome is the, the, the nation that's over all things. And although they have a temple and the people are in the land, or some of the people are in the land, and think that they're not sovereign, they're not their own nation, they're being oppressed, they're being taxed, they're being taken over by a government that is far from serving God, and all these things 
swirling around them. So you can understand why they would think, this is it, this is our chance, this is going to be our king, and we can do this. It makes sense. You can understand. In fact, I think you could even understand better if we just think a little bit about our current situation in the world. There's all kinds of problems in the world. Even in our own country, we're in debt, and the economy's not doing so well, and things are broken and messed up, and all the things that are swirling around, and you look at that, and and the the threats of war, and the, the wars that are going on in the world, and all those things, and if someone like Jesus came on the scene, what would we do in America? We'd make him a politician. Get him up there. This is the guy. Listen to what he said. I mean, if somebody came full of grace and truth and all those things and just talked and said all these things, he goes, yes, great. Do it. How much, how much better would things be if Jesus were president? The laws he would make and the way he would govern and what he would do, it would be so much better. There's actually a folk song written a long, long time ago by Woody Guthrie that said, Jesus Christ for president. It was the name of the song. It makes sense. We go, yeah, that would be great. It would make things, and I'm not going to suggest it wouldn't make things better. I think in a very temporal, earthly way, right now, it would make things better. But I want you to think about that this morning. Whether it's in Rome 2,000 years ago, in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, under Roman rule, or today, would that fix the problems? Would it fix all the problems that were bearing down on them in Rome? Or would it fix the problems today? Would it fix the root problems of greed and desire for power, or laziness, or trying to use people, or desire of profane and what my name to be great, and all the things that lead to so many problems in the world? Would it fix those things if Jesus became president, or someone like him became president today? I think it would make things better, but it wouldn't fix the root problems. There's a great quote from uh, Dr. Timothy Keller, and I, I just read this a few weeks ago, and it really struck me. He says it this way. He says, In the biblical view of things, the main problem of life is sin, and the only solution is God and His grace. The alternate to this view is to identify something besides sin as the main problem of the world, and something besides God as the main remedy, and that demonizes something that's not completely bad and makes an idol out of something that cannot be the ultimate good. And that's what would happen if we tried to make somebody an earthly king and they'll fix everything. Because we've identified something else as the problem than our sin and we've identified something else as the savior than from God himself. And so when we think about that, I want you to think just for a second that Jesus knows this. And that's why Jesus keeps talking about, I came to die. I came to lay my life down, not just to be an earthly king for a time. I came to lay my life down to take out the very foundations, the very root. If you ever go in your yard and you, you pull weeds, right? If you just grab the weed and you pull the top off, then it'll be back like the next day or two days later. You have to grab it and you have to get the root of it and you really have to pull it all the way out or it'll just come right back and it'll keep doing it over and over. The same is true when we identify other things besides sin as the root problem. We'll just keep doing the same thing over and over. And so Jesus knows that. And so when he talks about laying his life down and what he's come to do, he, that's what he's talking about. Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin on our behalf that we could become the righteousness of God in him. He says, I came to take care of the very root problem that upholds all the problems of the world, of Rome and of everything else, 
all the things that the people were excited that maybe we can do with, he says, I came to take the very thing that holds it all up, the sin that holds it all together head on, and to do away with it. And so what we see here is what Jesus says, look what he says in verse 31 and 32. Now is the judgment of the world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the death that he was going to die. And so Jesus is talking about the cross and what he came to do. And he says, only in this am I going to take out the bad, the ruler of this world. And so what Jesus was saying is, I came to step into the story to live the life that you couldn't live and to die the death that you should have died so that I can restore you to God because that's the main problem. You're cut off from God because of your sin and I've come to fix that. And so when we look at verse 31 and we see what he's talking about, now is the judgment of the world, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. What Jesus is saying is when he comes and he lays down his life for us in doing so, Jesus strips the ruler of the world, that is Satan, of any power or any weapon that he ever had that could actually damn us, which is a valid accusation of our unforgiven sin. You see what Jesus does? Satan can attack us with, God, you have to punish them, and you you look, and that's the the attack that he has because we have sin, and it's not dealt with, and Jesus says, I came to do away with that, and in doing so, he strips Satan of all power that he has. And that's what he's talking about in verse 31. And it's something far greater than just being a, a king for a time in an earthly kingdom. And as I thought about that picture and what that looks like, I love that I can make this point directly from Scripture. Better than I could ever say it, Paul says it in Colossians 2. And he says it this way. He says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside by nailing it to the cross. And then in verse 15, he says the same thing that he's saying in verse 31 here. He says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. So Paul says, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He came to take out the very foundations and in doing so, he does away with the sin. And he comes and he'll give you a new heart and a new life and that's the power of his kingdom. And so when Jesus talks about dying over and over without his atoning life and death and what he does for us, we would still be sitting in our sins. Even if he became the king and he uh, governed perfectly and made everything better, we would still be in our sins. And he knew that, and so that's why he talked about over and over that he was coming to die, because that's the answer. That's the answer to our problem, is Jesus' atoning work for us and nothing else. And so that's what we see. The power of the kingdom is the cross. And that's why Jesus says it that way. And only then will we be truly changed. And so that's the second part we talk about of why the power has to be Jesus' death. Because that's the only way that he can deal with sin. is to take our punishment for us and give us the benefits. And I want you to remember what we talked about in the Old Testament because the New Covenant... In Jeremiah, when he talks about that, he says, I will do that. And in the new covenant, I will give you a new heart. And I will give you a new way. And you'll want to follow me. And I will rejoice in doing good with all my might, doing good for you. 
And so only then do our hearts really change and does the problem really begin to be changed through God's grace and what he does through Christ and nothing else. And so that's the answer and that's the power of the kingdom. And so I want us just to think, and we're going to end here this morning just briefly on how we miss this. How we make it about other things. How we jump in and follow the world's view of the kingdom versus Jesus' view of the kingdom. Because we do that frequently. We do it often because we're bombarded with the opposite all the time around us. And so I want us just to think of a couple spiritual ways and then one very practically how it works out in our lives on how we miss it. And the first and foremost on how that we miss this in our own lives is through our own pride and arrogance. And we do it all the time. There's, there's a couple ways it goes. One, we, we, we miss it in our own pride and arrogance and that we think that we can be saved and we can be made okay with God and we can do things to fix it all under our own power and our own will. If I just work hard enough, things will get better. And if I just work hard enough, God will accept me and he'll forgive my sins and it'll be okay. And so we make it about us and our works. And that doesn't work. That's never enough and we can never do it. And that's just a very basic way we first miss it. Salvation is by work, and it's by me and what I do, and we've been saying that over and over. That's the big lie, that's the big problem in the story, the overview of Scripture is I make it all about me. The story becomes about me instead of the story being about God and what I do. That's the first way we miss it, our pride and our arrogance. But then even, secondly, even through that, oftentimes we'll say, well, I'm saved by faith alone in Jesus, and that is absolutely right, and that is true. We say every week, Talk about the gospel, and the gospel is the good news of what Christ does for us. He comes and saves us of no doing of our own, but then there's a subtle backdoor to that. I got saved by faith alone because I'm a pretty good person. We start to slip that in there. I was smart enough to figure it out. Right? Maybe I, I put the things together and I read a bunch of stuff, and intellectually I came to this, and now I'm saved. And so through the back door, we begin to say, we're saying, I'm saved by faith alone, but through the back door, we're talking about what I did to figure that out, to understand that. It, it still starts to creep in, to come back, that it's about me and what I do. And I just want you to look for just a second here at this last little section, because there's, there's the answer to, that's not how you got saved. You weren't smarter than some other people to figure it out, but look what happens there at the end. So all these people Jesus is saying, and he's telling them, while you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. So Jesus is saying, the light being himself, while I am here, and I'm professing, and I'm telling you, come and have faith and believe. And then it says, when Jesus said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. And though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be filled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the Lord been revealed? And then verse 39 says, Therefore they could not believe. What in the world? What that means is the only way you and I or anyone ever believes is the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And it's not you. It's God opening your eyes to see who he is. And if he does, then we accept it, and we accept his free gifts, but it's all him. It's all his doing. And so the very practical side of that, as we start to think about that, as we, as we go out and we share the gospel and we say those things, is that we should be on our face 
and prayer. It is only through moving and working. God calls us to be faithful, and he tells us to speak his word, and that through the proclamation of his word, people will believe, but the actual act of that belief has to come from the Holy Spirit doing it. And so, I say this often, but it's so important that we grasp this. You're saved because God loves you, and the reason God loves you is because God loves you. And that's it. There's, there's nothing else after that. He loved you because he loved you. We like to make it, well, because I did this or because I did that. And that's, that's not what Scripture teaches. It's because of what he does. And he opens our eyes to see. And so when we start to grasp that, we see that it's all him. It's all him. And it starts to turn our story from us and our arrogance and our pride and look at me and look what I do to all Christ when he becomes that much more beautiful. And so that takes us to the last part. And when we start to get that, that leads us to the last part. And the last part on how we miss it, and you see it in verses 25 and 26, and then 42, if you look at 25, he says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, then will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father, Father will honor him. And then look at the end there in verse 42. Nevertheless, many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But for fear of the Pharisees, that they did not confess it, so they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. The biggest reason today, as a church and as believers, that we miss the power of the kingdom and the way God's moving is we're embarrassed of them. We care more what people think than what our Savior thinks. We love our life more than His. We'd rather not be put out of the synagogue or whatever it is. We'd rather not be made to be foolish or look silly because of what people think so we just go, I just won't say anything. And we miss it. Jesus said over and over, go make disciples and go teach them and go tell them that's your job as a Christian, to be a proclaimer, to go and tell the good news of what Jesus has done. And he's just waiting to show you the ways he's going to move when you do that. And we go, ah, they might think I'm crazy. They might think, whatever. And we care more what people think than what God thinks. We care more about the glory of man than the glory of God, and we love our life more than his kingdom. We love this kingdom of this world more than his kingdom and his world and what he's going to do. And so there's a very real challenge that we're just going to end with. That's it for us as believers. That when we see what he's done for us and it's no doing of our own and he does it completely for us and we owe everything in our lives to him, how can we not say anything? How can we be embarrassed by that? We should be willingly throwing this, I'll lose my life for that. Oh, that we would have that boldness. And that's my challenge as we end today as a church. And imagine what God will do when we care more about His glory than we do about our own. We'll be amazed by that. So let's, let's pray. Dear Lord, that's our prayer this morning as we, as we end, as we think about what you came to do and the fact that the whole power of your kingdom and all of it hinges on your death and your resurrection and what you did for us 
and that every bit of that along the way is your doing and not ours. And then you just ask us to join you in your your kingdom and proclaim it. And so we ask that you give us boldness to do so, that we would care more about your glory than anything else, that you would move in this body of believers and press that upon our hearts, that we just be overwhelmed by your grace and your love, that we just couldn't contain uh, sharing that with others. We thank you for all you've done for us, and we pray it in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank <laughs> you.